If you will, open your Bibles to the book of Acts once again to chapter 15. We want to uh, complete uh, those final verses of chapter 15. We'll begin reading today in verse 36. And we're going to go into chapter 16 and read through verse 15. So uh, the book of Acts, chapter 15, beginning there in verse uh, 36. It's not unusual for me to be uh, asked uh, a question uh, pertaining uh, to what we might call the doctrine of election or, again, the issues surrounding that of predestination. I don't know why people would ask me that. I've mentioned very little about that over uh, the years. But uh, at any rate, uh, we often engage in a bit of discussion and sometimes uh, a bit of uh, debate. Uh, and I often tell people, you can have a different opinion as to what the Bible means by what it says. But what you can't say is I do not believe in the doctrine of election and predestination because your Bible states clearly that those are biblical truths and biblical realities. If that challenges you, there are a lot of other things that you will be challenged by if you'll read your Bible and think about what you're reading. That is the doctrine of the Incarnation. That is our Lord Jesus Christ is both fully, notice that word right there, fully, God and man. That God has eternally existed in three co-equal persons. None of them created, all of them eternal. Three persons in the Trinity, yet one God. You ought to struggle a little bit with what we call the problem of pain. The reality of how a good and sovereign God could allow such great evil into his world. Maybe, uh, perhaps, and if you have unbelieving friends, this, may be a, this is always a good and popular question. How could a good and loving God command the armies of Israel to go into cities in Canaan and eradicate the entire population? Not only kill the men, but kill the women, the children, their goats, their cows, their chickens, and everything else. That doesn't sound very nice. And so another question that we might come up with is why did, Paul, did God direct the Apostle Paul to the West, that is, into Europe? Why is it that the gospel took such deep and firm root and the church flourished in Europe and continued westward to impact those who founded this nation. Now, there are many today that would say that uh, Christianity has had a perverse effect upon Western civilization, uh, that we're to blame for all the problems that we know of in the present day. I would like for those who complain about this country and its foundations and the influence of Christianity to go and gripe and level those same complaints in North Korea, in China, in uh, North Korea, in countries in Africa. Just go and bellyache over there about how corrupt and terrible everything is and let's see how it goes. Certainly, society, culture, we have benefited by the influence of Christianity upon those who went before us. But the truth is that the gospel is not primarily about making your life better in this world. It's about preparing your soul for eternity. It's about people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet, that same question must be asked, why did the gospel not go north and east and take root there, but yet went north and west and took firm root there? 
It is a good question if you like to ask questions and think about it. But the answer to the question as to why Paul took the gospel to Europe is very simple. God told him to take it there. It's a bit like the child who says, why must I do this or why can't I do that? It is because I said so. And then the invariable question is what? What does said so mean? Well, again, the gospel went where it went and had the impact that it had because of God's command, God's providential working, and because of the work, the ministry of the Holy Spirit through that proclamation of the gospel. And so we see it as what? The working out of God's plan. And so let's consider today, and uh, really there's kind of four interesting snapshots that we're going to try to tackle, and there's some doctrinal considerations that uh, uh, flow out of, uh, of these episodes. But let's think this morning about the reality of Paul being directed uh, to take the gospel uh, into the continent of Europe. Verse 36, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose silence and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by uh, the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, uh, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Uh, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia uh, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. After she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Let's pray. Father, once again, uh, we thank you for your word. Your word is true. Uh, your word is a testimony uh, to what you have done for us in your son, Jesus Christ. May he be uh, exalted in all that we would say today. We pray that your spirit uh, would be at work among us, uh, Lord, that we would hear uh, your truth that your truth would be applied by your spirit uh, to our lives. We thank you for this great opportunity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to the conclusion of chapter 15, 
and we see the beginning of what is typically referred to as Paul's second missionary uh, journey, uh, that uh, he has uh, returned from Antioch after that council at Jerusalem in which some of the uh, tensions between uh, the Jews and the Gentiles in the church were uh, resolved. They were debated and uh, a statement was hammered out. That was brought back. Uh, they spent uh, some time uh, there in Antioch. We don't know exactly uh, how long uh, they stayed, but we're looking at uh, the end of the 40s A.D., so probably this was a three-year mission uh, that began somewhere around 49 A.D. and continued to about 52 A.D., occurring approximately two decades uh, after the, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church uh, has been growing. Uh, it has faced some growing pains, uh, which uh, uh, by the leadership of the apostles and by uh, the leadership of the elders and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, they've been able to, to work through some of the, the tensions and some of the conflicts, and God has blessed the church, people have been saved, but yet at all times, uh, there are conflicts uh, that the church uh, must face. Sometimes they're from within, sometimes they are from uh, without. And so uh, we see here uh, that uh, Paul uh, becomes convinced of the necessity of not remaining there in Antioch, but once again uh, to, uh, to leave behind uh, that which is familiar uh, and go back to where he had gone on the first missionary journey. Of course, he's going to go uh, far beyond that. And so we see in Paul not only a, a passion for the preaching of the gospel. But as we follow his ministry, uh, he, he is uh, a capable apologist for the truth. He's able to defend the faith. He's, a, he's able to, to start wherever people are. He's able uh, to speak to the Gentile. He's able to speak to the Jew, all in terms of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mentioned uh, a moment ago uh, what I think uh, many times pops up in the culture as a problem. How is it that God could have commanded the death of so many quote-unquote innocent people? And so we need to be prepared to always be able to answer the questions uh, that the culture has. We need to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is within us, whether we're uh, starting from uh, the standpoint of someone that, that is, uh, considers themselves deeply spiritual or deeply religious, whether they think of themselves as an agnostic or an atheist. We need to be able to enter wherever they are and begin to speak to them in regards to the gospel and defend the fact that it's true, to prove the fact that it is true. And so Paul was a passionate preacher capable as an apologist. He was courageous as a missionary and a church planner. But one thing that I think is really easy to miss with Paul, because at times he can be pretty, um, pretty abrupt, pretty, pretty pointed. And, and, I, and I don't think that, that he speaks that way because he's mean-spirited or anything like that. I think sometimes you speak that way for the sake of clarity. That, that sometimes you don't, you don't sugarcoat and dilly-dally and try to, to smooth everything out. You just say, this is the way it is, this is what it is. And, and so Paul many times uh, speaks that way, but you also see in him this nurturing and uh, uh, this concern uh, for the churches, and, and he functions as a protective uh, shepherd. He speaks of the Philippian church later as those that he yearned for with the affection of Christ. He speaks of the church in Thessalonica as uh, uh, reflecting upon his ministry there. He says, he, I was gentle among you, affectionately desirous of you, like a father with his children, desiring to see you face to face. And so Paul had a deep concern and a deep love for the well-being, for the welfare of these churches. Going back, to shore them up, so to speak, uh, to be sure that they knew the, knew the truth and the truth was continuing uh, to be uh, proclaimed there in uh, their midst. And so he states the, the purpose uh, for uh, this second uh, missionary endeavor. And we are told in verse 37 that his colleague, his associate, his companion, uh, Barnabas, wanted to take John Mark 
uh, with them. And so you will uh, remember uh, from Acts chapter 13 uh, that this young man had become discouraged along the course early in the days of that first missionary journey, and he went home. He went home. Uh, We're not told exactly what his issues were, and here we're told really in in just succinct terms uh, that Barnabas had one opinion regarding this young man, and Paul uh, had another opinion regarding uh, this young man. And it says there in verse 39 that there arose a sharp disagreement. The Greek there is paroxymus, paroxymus. And while, like a lot of Greek words, there's some nuances there that that can be shaded one way or the other, Uh, most people think it it is a statement uh, of uh, exasperation and irritation and even anger, that that there was something of an argument uh, between these two great men uh, that God had used and God would use uh, about the the virtues of uh, leaving this young man behind or taking him with them. And so uh, they couldn't come to a, to a compromise position. Now, just a, a quick aside, one of the things that I long for in the church is what Jesus prayed for, namely our unity, okay? Uh, that there not be things that, that fracture relationships uh, in the church and all too frequently, uh, I find things that have fractured uh, churches, and I, I get phone calls pretty regularly uh, from friends and family members, and they say, well, this is what's happening in our church. This has happened. This is going on. And uh, it's, of course, very difficult to, to offer much advice in those uh, situations because you don't know the whole story. Uh, but uh, in our fallen world, uh, uh, there's going to be conflicts uh, occasionally. Now, I will just go ahead and get ahead of the story and tell you this. I don't know how and I don't know when, but all three of these men were reconciled to each other. Uh, Paul's later letters uh, reflect a deep affection for both Mark and for Barnabas. And so at some point, uh, they uh, they were able to to reconcile. But at this point, uh, over the issue, and you can see... Uh, Do you exercise great grace and say, all is forgiven? Mark, come along and go with us. Or do you say, hey, buddy, you blew it. You left us hanging. And, you know, you have to to persevere in this thing. This this thing is not for sissies. And we're afraid that we'll get out there once again. You'll quit again because you've got that track record. As I've told you before, one of the things as a pastor that I look back on is far too often, I've hugged the necks of those who need a kick in the seat of the pants, and I've kicked in the seat of the pants those who need a hug, okay? Seems like I never get it right. I always do the wrong thing. But, uh, but here we see, again, uh, a, a dispute, and, and, and you know, how do you, how do you resolve it, okay? The, you, you, they couldn't say, well, let's go to our Bible, and, you know, it, it says here, take Mark with you. You know, they, they didn't, didn't have that. And, uh, you know, who was the leader? It seems like there was kind of a transition that, that Barnabas initially was kind of the, the alpha uh, in that relationship. But uh, in the midst of that, Paul became uh, very much the, the, the leader. And so uh, was it Paul's call? Hey, I'm the leader of this merry little band, and I get to say who goes and who doesn't. Or do you... You know, err on the side of a, a great deal of graciousness and say, we're going to give this young man a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth chance. Difficult questions, uh, but again, we should be both warned and humbled that there's always a potential for disagreement about things among human beings. Imagine that. All God's people said, okay, there, there's potential uh, for these things. Uh, these great men could not, in the, at least the immediate context here, come to a, a working solution. Now, I think some commentators try to round the edges off just a bit in that uh, in God's providence, he sent a missionary team to Cyprus, namely uh, Barnabas and Mark, and that, and, and that was a good thing, okay? And then Paul went on about the business that he had imagined uh, with Silas. And I'm not sure it should be rounded off quite that, that gently, uh, this was a real issue, and uh, uh, again, it is what it is. It's an embarrassing thing, and as is often pointed to, some of the embarrassing testimonies to be found in Scripture prove what? 
that the Bible is true, that they're not trying to cover up and they're not trying to gloss over and they're not trying to say that these men are perfect. In fact, this illustrates just as every failed king in Israel illustrated the need for a perfect king whose name is Jesus, these imperfect men demonstrated what? There has only been one perfect man, and he died on the cross for us. And so, they, uh, uh, they separate, they go about uh, their, their separate ways. It is interesting uh, that Paul becomes the focus of the balance of the book of Acts, uh, that uh, Silas moves off to, I mean, yeah, Sil- uh, excuse me, Barnabas moves off to Cyprus, and that's the last we hear of him, okay, uh, in, in terms of being featured uh, in the Scripture, other than Paul mentioning them, and again, mentioning them uh, in a positive sense. So they go on their separate uh, missions. It is interesting in verse 40 that upon the departure of Paul, we see they were commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. We don't get that same statement with the other team, okay? Don't know if we should read too much into that or not. It's just simply what the text uh, says uh, to us. And so they leave, and they're headed back. They're going north, and they go to, uh, the, to Syria, to Cilicia. Notice, strengthening the churches. Now, there's, there's something about life in the church and, and life of, of the work of a pastor and life of the work of a member of a church. And here's the deal. The work is never done. The work is never done. That, that, that I never get to leave the office on any given day and say, I've got it. I mean, I, every one of the members of North Clay Baptist Church, they are perfected. I don't have to worry a bit about them. Never. And listen, to whatever degree membership has responsibility, you can never go home and go to sleep and say, I'm thankful all my brothers and sisters in Christ at North Clay Baptist Church, they are perfected and I have no responsibility to them. There's always a need for the church to be strengthened. It is a continuing work. And we will be, not be perfected until the day we see our Lord Jesus Christ. And so our goal is to what? To live faithfully until that day. Engaging. In the work, doing the work God has assigned the way God has assigned us to do uh, those things. And so, Paul leaves, he heads out. Let's look, move forward to chapter 16. And we're going to be introduced to this young man, Timothy, who will join Paul in this mission endeavor in Lystra. And really, Timothy will become Paul's closest associate. I mean, it, I think it's very obvious uh, from uh, uh, the, the nature of what Paul has written uh, for us and been preserved as Scripture uh, that they had a unique relationship. And uh, Timothy uh, had, a, had a deep affection for Paul. Paul made a, a, an indelible mark uh, upon uh, this young man. And so uh, we find that uh, Paul goes back to Derby and Lystra. What happened in Lystra? Paul got stoned. Uh, and, and that's not a 1960s kind of statement, okay? Uh, Paul got hit with rocks, okay? All right? Paul got almost killed for the sake of the gospel. We often talk of Paul being impacted by the death of Stephen, and I think he was. I think that's one of the goads he couldn't kick against, in fact, among other things. But how young Timothy must have been impressed that we tried to kill him people of my city tried to kill this man and here he comes again and he hadn't changed the message one bit and so Timothy had to be impressed now evidently we're told that he was already a disciple Uh, I don't know if if during that first journey that Timothy heard the gospel it seems as though maybe his uh, grandmother and mother, Lois and Eunice, may have been what we call Old Covenant saints, that, that they had nurtured young Timothy in, in the faith. He had heard the Word of God as a young man there uh, from uh, these Jewish uh, ladies. But he was a child of a mixed marriage. His father was a Greek or a, a Gentile. And so uh, by Jewish reckoning, Timothy was a Jew, okay, because his mother was a Jew, but we're also told that he had not been circumcised, evidently, uh, according to Greek uh, 
law and Greek custom, the father was in charge and he objected uh, to that being uh, done uh, to his son. And so as Paul uh, decides that Timothy should go with them uh, to minister, we're told in verse 3 that he circumcises this young man. Now, wait a minute. Didn't we just deal with that last week? And, and didn't the apostles and the elders decide that there was really no necessity, there was nothing incumbent upon the church to continue uh, to practice this? Uh, and so why would you take a, a young man and put him uh, through that? Has, has Paul, is Paul uh, you know, wishy-washy? Is he shilly-shallying? Is he, is he just, uh, you know, just like, well, whatever kind of works? Here's the thing. It seems, and we're real, we're, we really don't get a specific explanation. But to Jewish minds, Timothy would have been perceived as an unfaithful Jew. And being circumcised or not being circumcised was not an ultimate issue. And Paul, I believe, thought, I don't want it to be the issue all through this missionary endeavor that we've always got to get and debate this issue when the primary issue is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I will become all things to all men. To the Jew, I become a Jew. To those who are not Jews, I will behave as not a Jew. But I will do nothing that creates offense, okay? And so it wasn't that it was necessary to fulfill the law. There was nothing pertaining to ceremonial cleanness. It was simply a a, a matter of probable expediency that this thing wouldn't keep coming up, that he wouldn't have to debate it in every town. What's, What's the deal with Timothy? What's the deal with Timothy? Because if you'll remember, Titus was never circumcised, evidently. But Timothy was, and I think it was just to put something to bed so that, again, they could travel, they could go into the synagogues, and they could uh, preach uh, the gospel of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it may remind us a bit, and I I don't want to overwork this too much, but I've I've always heard, long before I knew who Charles Spurgeon was, uh, this is signed to Spurgeon. I've never seen it in print. So I don't know if he said it or not, but it sounds good, so we'll, we'll, we'll roll with it, I guess. But uh, I'm told that Charles Spurgeon said that in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And that's a nice cliche. Uh, it, it, I think it works a lot of the time. Uh, but there are things, biblically, doctrinally, we just can't compromise. This is just the way it is. And, you know. It's a suck it up buttercup kind of thing. You know, just get over it. As I say sometimes, uh, your, your problem isn't with me. Your problem is with the Bible. And, and I can remember years ago at my previous church, we had some sweet little old ladies, and, and they were always complaining about the thermostat and blah, blah, blah. And uh, at any rate, uh, one, sometimes they get into these discussions and they go, well, I know that's what the Bible says, but and one I didn't say this was not me, okay? I did not say this, but that other pastor said, "Well, the problem's your butt," okay? And so, uh, at any rate, uh, I know that's what the Bible says, but I got a different opinion. I'm sorry, you're not entitled, okay? The Bible says it. Doesn't even matter if you believe it. As the old cliche goes, that settles it, okay? So, um, Paul does this. They continue to engage in the work that Paul traveled there for. Verse 4, they went on their way through the cities. They delivered the decision from the Jerusalem uh, council, okay? And then notice that summary in verse 5. Something Luke likes to do is give us a bit of a progress report. We see this a number of times through the book of, of Acts. And so... Uh, the churches were strengthened. Isn't that what Paul said he wanted to do? Let's go back. Let's, let's, let's shore them up. Let's uh, remind them of, of the truth. Let's be sure that they remain on, on track. And so they're strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number. They were healthy churches. They were growing. Evangelism uh, was happening. People uh, were being, being saved. Okay? And so uh, they're endeavoring. Notice again there... Uh, 
they're going on their way. Uh, they're in kind of what is uh, southern uh, Turkey. And we see, again, this, this call, this Macedonian call. Does anybody remember singing the old gospel song, Send the Light? Remember that? I've heard what? I've heard the Macedonian call today. Send the light, send the light. Well, that's, there's your text right there. That's where that comes from, okay? And so Paul experiences this uh, unique vision of the man from Macedonia. Uh, we see the uh, working of the Holy Spirit, uh, the working of God providentially uh, to direct uh, Paul to where uh, he would have Paul uh, to minister. Look there in verse 6. Again, uh, they're in southern uh, Turkey. And notice they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Whatever God's secret plan was, it was simply for Paul not at that time uh, to venture north uh, and east. And so having understood that, uh, they go to Mycenae and they uh, attempt to go uh, due north into Bithynia, northern uh, Turkey, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So God was barring them from going somewhere that Paul uh, thought he should go, okay? Uh, but there was a definitive um, work of the Spirit uh, that, that told them that's not, they, not where they were going to go. So they passed through Mycenae and down to Troas, and in verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night of a man of Macedonia and was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, again, supernatural, uh, uh, a work from God. And, and as I say, I'm, I'm a closed canon guy. Uh, please don't tell me about your visions after church today. Uh, I, I'm not really interested uh, in, in those things, uh, uh, nor what God told you and all of these different things. This was unique uh, to the Apostle Paul uh, to, that, to that time. And so God definitively revealed to him, this is where you're going. You're going somewhere that you didn't plan to go. And God sometimes, whether... Uh, something deeply within our, our souls. Uh, we become convinced to do this, that, or the other, whether he works providentially. Sometimes God changes our plans, does he not? Because he's God, and we're his. And so, this vision appears, and he hears this appeal uh, from this uh, man in Macedonia, and truly it's the vision that changed the world. Uh, and I mean, just... Just think about for just a moment, and as I said in, in my introduction, the gospel is primarily for the saving of the souls of men and women and boys and girls, to deliver people from hell. But a corollary, a, an impact, a secondary uh, uh, implication of the gospel is cultural change. Now, are ladies or women better off in cultures that have been impacted by the gospel or those that have, have not? Are ladies better off in China, in Africa, in India, in North Korea? Are they better off? Are, are their lives better? Is, is, is culture in general better in those unchristianized nations or are they better in nations that have had some influence of the gospel in the course of of their history. And I would say to you that this has radically changed the world. We are beneficiaries of it. And those that live in other parts of the world that were not beneficiaries of the gospel have been impoverished because of it. And it's, it's a great why. why. Now, that's not saying missionaries never went east. They did. Okay? Uh, I think church history says that Thomas, there's good evidence Thomas died in India. Okay? And so, the gospel went, but it just never seemed to take much in the way of deep root. And, and whether you, you think of uh, uh, Islam as a religion or, or communism as a, a, a modern ideology, all of them uh, really were made possible because of the unbelieving culture. Okay? They, they arose uh, in this world in which uh, it was not proclaimed that Jesus uh, is is Lord. And so the Paul Paul went exactly where God would have him be. And I and I I I truly believe 
that there is something to that type of specific calling, okay? Again, I, I'm not a, a huge, uh, you know, God told me to do this, and I've, I've told you before, we all have an inner voice, don't we? I don't think you're crazy. You can raise your hand. We all have an inner voice. We have this inner dialogue, and it's healthy. And to the degree you're filled with the Spirit and to the degree we have a knowledge of the Word of God, those things can be very productive in your life. I just think the wrong file to put it in is God told me. You can become deeply convinced that this is absolutely what God wants me to do. When uh, uh, the pulpit committee reached out to me in 2003, it didn't take me long to be deeply convinced this was the church I should serve. Did, did God tell me that? I'm not going to say God told me that. But I had a deep conviction within me that has remained that this is the place that God would have me invest myself for the sake of the preaching of the gospel. And, you know, this is God's assignment. I, I, you know, and there's a sense where I don't really get to pick and choose. You're stuck with me, I'm stuck with y'all, however you want to look at it, you know. It's by, by God's grace, or maybe you think otherwise, okay? Uh, but, but God has, in his providence and in his wisdom, brought us together to constitute a church uh, called North Clay Baptist Church. And so uh, we want to do God's work, and we want to do it in God's way, and we want to be God's people placed in the right place. Now, uh, now I don't think you should drive yourself crazy. Should I preach the gospel? Should I evangelize? Should I tell this person about Jesus? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Okay, don't, don't, well, I don't know if I'm supposed to be here or not. Well, if you're there, you're supposed to be there. Okay? And if God doesn't want you there, guess what? He'll move you. Okay? He'll move you. And so, uh, uh, so again, we see something of the, the working of the Holy Spirit, which is, again, one of the emphases of the book of Acts, is how the Holy Spirit moves his people and forms uh, the church uh, through the preaching of the gospel. So, Paul's conclusion there in verse uh, 10, we, we sought to go to Macedonia concluding what? God had called us to preach the gospel there. We're not on a sightseeing tour. We're there for the sake of the church. We're sake there to preach uh, the gospel. So they leave uh, there, uh, the mainland, and they attempt to uh, sail across uh, the Aegean Sea uh, there and to, uh, from Troas to Neapolis. Now, just an interesting thing. I don't know why this caught my attention, but look there at verse 11, if we kind of unpack this first convert there in Europe. It says, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. Now, I, did, I, I really had never even thought about this place. I had to Google it, okay? You know, I had to look it up. Where are we? And it's a big rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea. That's, all, that's essentially all it is. And it's got a mountain or a peak or the rock itself, I guess. The com it's interesting. The commentators say it's 5,900 feet high. Uh, the, the Wikipedia says it's 5,200 feet high. I don't know which one it is, but it's over a mile high, okay? That's a pretty big rock, okay? And, and so uh, in the ancient world, uh, typically if you were going uh, from Troas and trying to get over to the European continent there in Macedonia, uh, the port being Neapolis, uh, typically uh, you didn't want to sail past Samothrace at night. Uh, there was not a harbor there. There was not a port to, to go ashore. Uh, per se, but you anchored off of that rock. Okay, now again, it's it's a it's got it's seventy square miles. Okay, uh, there's about three thousand people that live there today, and it really looks pretty in, in the pictures, mountains and waterfalls and and all that kind of things. So it looked like a cool place to go. But they anchor there for the night, and then they complete the journey to Neapolis in two days. Now it's interesting. I don't know if that's the trade winds or the prevailing winds or, or how that works, but when, when they go back, it takes five days. It takes five days to go back because the winds were unfavorable to their journey. But going, it was a two-day uh, journey. And I, Again, I just found that kind of interesting. Uh, this high peak is known as Mount Figari, and in uh, ancient mythology, that was the residence of Poseidon, and Poseidon looked down to preside over and protect the ancient city of Troy, there again in Asia Minor or modern Turkey. And so they arrived there in uh, Neapolis, and so they, they set out for Philippi about 10 miles inland on the Ignatian Way. Now once again we're reminded of God in His wisdom, God in His providence had prepared the world for these missionaries. 
for the gospel. Roman roads, Roman peace, Greek language. So they could go, and they had a common language, namely Greek. Uh, they were relatively safe by ancient standards. Uh, there were roads for them to walk on, and I understand if you go to certain parts of, of Europe, uh, today, there are still uh, the foundations of these ancient uh, Roman roads that you can see. And even, I think, some of them are still in use because they were so uh, well built. And so uh, they go and they arrive in Philippi. Uh, it's described as a leading city of the district of uh, Macedonia. And on the Sabbath, they begin to look for a place to preach. Now, here's the deal. Evidently, there were not 10 Jewish men in Philippi to form a synagogue. That's, that was the requirement. If there was going to be a synagogue, it had to be 10 Jewish men. What Paul finds outside of the city along the banks of the river is a gathering of women who have uh, gathered there uh, to, to worship and to pray. Okay? So uh, Paul comes upon uh, these women, and again, I, I don't think they... The, the way the text reads, I, I don't think they knew that they were going out to find these women, that they were looking. Uh, I think the norm would have been uh, that if there were some Jews that were going to worship, they would have gone outside the city. They would have gone beside the river. And so uh, Paul goes out, and he, it says, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. So I don't, I don't think he really knew. He was just looking, thinking that surely there are a few Jews here and they're going to be faithful to worship God on uh, the Sabbath. And so evidently it was entirely made up of women who had gathered there uh, for worship. And in verse 14, uh, we're introduced to the lady who has our, our interest there, a lady uh, known as Lydia. Uh, we're told that she was from Thyatira, again back in Turkey, Asia Minor, and that she is a seller of purple goods. And it's typically assumed that she was probably a fairly wealthy merchant, quite possibly, quite likely, a widow. And so uh, uh, either uh, this, this, these purple goods were either made from uh, the, the glands of some shellfish or from the, uh, a matter root. Uh, I've seen uh, people speak of it in, in both ways, uh, but, but it was very a very expensive, very tedious process to produce uh, this type of fabric, this, this dyed purple fabric, and typically associated with the aristocrats and royalty. And so she is thought to be a woman of substantial means. Uh, it seems like the church met in her house, and she had a house big enough to have a household and room to invite the missionaries to come stay with her. So it seems to suggest she was a lady of substantial means. She was also a worshiper of God, a worshiper of God. Uh, typically, we've, we've talked about that the concept of a proselyte, uh, a, a Gentile, that has at some level become intrigued uh, with the Word of God, the God of the Word, uh, the issues surrounding Judaism. And so she's intrigued uh, by that. And then we're told, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I think it's one of the most important statements to be found in the entirety of Scripture. That, that says something to us very important about the nature of conversion, the nature of evangelism. It doesn't say that Lydia opened her heart. It says that the Lord opened her heart. Okay, That, that, that she, like all others that are in a state of unbelief, no matter what, how spiritual they are, how, how interested they are, there is a point in time in which God opens their heart to savingly hear and believe the gospel. He, he, he takes them from death unto life. And this is not the only time that, that Luke has expressed an interest in, in God's sovereign uh, working in, in, in salvation. Uh, he, we have him recording Jesus, uh, speaking of uh, the reality that he has come to suffer and be rejected and die, that he's going to be delivered over the hands of, of sinful men, that, that uh, again, the Son of Man is going to be uh, betrayed as it has been determined, uh, that Jesus was crucified according to the set purpose and foreknowledge of God, that those that were appointed to eternal life, believed. 
All of these things uh, are, are reflections of Luke's conviction of God's uh, superintending, overarching, undergirding sovereignty in the reception of, the experience of salvation. I would suggest that what happened here is when God opened her heart, she was born again. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Luke also uses this, this same uh, Greek word, dianago, dianago, in Luke 24, 45, in describing what went on between Jesus and the Emmaus Road disciples. Okay? I would think they were disciples and they were regenerate. There's a distinction between how Luke uses it in the Gospel of Luke, 24-45, and how he uses it here. The distinction is what? In Luke 24-45, he opened, he dianagos, he opens their mind to understand what they previously did not understand about the Gospel of Jesus Christ, about his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Here, Lydia's heart is opened to believe the gospel. And I think that's the, the distinction. I, I think it's not a distinction without a difference. It's a distinction with a difference. That she had a heart of stone that God, in his, by his sovereign plan and purpose and power, gave a heart of flesh to hear, to believe the gospel. How did it happen? Well, she was listening. She was hearing the preaching of the Word of God because faith comes by hearing because the Word of God is the imperishable seed of the new birth. And so Paul was preaching, and God worked in opening this woman's heart, and she believed that gospel. She confesses Christ, look at verse 15, and after she was baptized. Now, there, there's several things here that, that we could pick at just a little bit. Uh, one, it seems like very quickly she was baptized. Typically here at North Clay, we like to talk to you for a while. If you want to be baptized, uh, we, we want to check you out stem to stern. Okay? I think that's wise. But, but it, it, as I've said many times, it seems like the biblical pattern seems to follow pretty quickly. But we want you to understand what it is that you're doing, uh, that indeed, uh, as much as we can discern, which is indeed, indeed very limited, you understand the gospel, you're believing the gospel, you're surrendering yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You want to confess that by entering uh, the waters of baptism. And so it gets even more interesting after she was baptized and her whole household as well. So she went home and got all of her infants, and she brought them to Paul. Y'all are not listening because not many of you are grinning, okay? This, this is a grin, okay? This is where your Presbyterian friends argue for infant baptism. That whole households were baptized in Philippi. Surely there were infants that they were brought to the Apostle Paul, and he dabbed them. Never mind the, the word baptizo means to dunk in good old Baptist terminology. And so we see, we'll see it again in the case of the Philippian jailer. Whole households were baptized. And so I, I, I remember when I, you know, I, I told you, I think last week or the week before, uh, that uh, about Dale going to study with the Presbyterians and coming home telling me this is why the Presbyterians do what they do. And I said, well, they're wrong. And I still say they're wrong 30 years later. Uh, but uh, this, is, this is one of their arguments, uh, that, that the children of believers should be baptized as infants looking forward to their regeneration and their faith. It's, and he, I never will forget, the, the church history professor at Beeson came out to speak to us one day, Gerald Bray, smartest guy I've ever met, brilliant. And somebody asked him something about Catholicism, and I loved his response. He said, it's, it's very organized. He's, he's British or something. It's very organized. It's just not biblical. And it's kind of the same way with this infant baptism. It's, it's really organized. It's just not biblical. Okay, so while it's unstated, who was baptized? Those who heard the gospel, those whom God opened the hearts, those who believed the gospel, those who made a credible confession of faith, Paul willingly baptized. We believe in 
Believer's baptism, or more technically known as credo baptism. In other words, I believe that Jesus has died in my place, and I am saved uh, by his grace. And so we can see here, too, after she's baptized, after the family is baptized, we'll just summarize it and say it very simply, our last verse there. He invites them to come stay in her house, saved unto good works. Not saved by good works, but saved and giving testimony to the reality that she has been saved by a transformed life, by opening her home, even providing the use of that home uh, for uh, the sake of, of the church. And so uh, we see here, again, uh, uh, a, a, an ample example of how God works in salvation, that it is God uh, that works through the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel must be proclaimed, but he is the one through the work of his Holy Spirit that actually initiates and causes uh, that person uh, to believe. Once that person has believed, they are baptized. And again, because they have believed, a life of obedience, of good works, of fruit flows out of that life. And so uh, we see uh, in here uh, a number of things that we probably can think about for a few days. Again, uh, uh, the challenge of uh, disagreements in the church, going back to uh, Paul and, and Barnabas, and, and you know, it's a terrible thing uh, to experience, but uh, that we always, no matter what the controversy, whatever the conflict is, our business is to strengthen the church. It is to go. It is to do this work. It is to faithfully proclaim the gospel for the sake of the church. It's to be about the business of making disciples, remembering our responsibility is proclamation, telling others. It's God's work to save. It's God who gets the glory because He is the one who is the author and the finisher, the completer of our faith. So from beginning to end, it's God's salvation to give, to accomplish, and to apply. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, your truth. We thank you for this testimony of those who have been found faithful in serving you. Uh, we see uh, the testimony of how you work, how you lead, how you use your gospel. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would continue to use your church, continue to use this church uh, to go out from this place uh, with the gospel uh, for the sake uh, that uh, men and women and boys and girls would be saved, that you would open uh, many hearts as the imperishable seed of the new birth is sown. Uh, bless us uh, this day. Uh, Lord, we, we love you. We praise you. Uh, we thank you that you have brought us together. And again, you have caused us not only to believe, but you've caused us to be your church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.